my heart has just come alive so many times along the way, just hearing a lot of you just talk about the good stuff that God is doing in your life. And to know that, I mean, I, I, I meet and talk with like a lot of pastors like pretty regularly. And there's a lot of things in a lot of churches where there's situations created so that way you get the feedback that you feel like your congregation needs to hear. In other words, like people are really strongly suggested to say certain things at certain places in a certain way, so that way it has the appearance of maybe a little bit more than what God is actually doing. And, and I understand the intention behind it. Um, but I, I, I don't know, I, I tend to really rejoice when I see a lot of you share from a genuine and authentic heart and a transparent one at that, which is priceless. That kind of transparency. And when I hear you guys share about what God is doing in your life um, and how he's moving, that is just, there's nothing better than that to me. I mean, nothing better than that. Nothing better than that. Um, it's funny, the kids at school, you know, they just, I'll tell you what, this year, I've had more breakthrough this 11th year there as far as just having conversations, you know, with kids in class, with faculty members, praying with faculty and with kids. Greatest break that I've ever had this year than all my previous years, which is really interesting to me. Um, and it's really funny. They asked, they're like, Mr. Murphy, what? Math? Like, you always wanted to teach math? I'm like, no, you know, I really didn't always want to teach math. <laughs> I said, it doesn't mean it's not valuable. It doesn't mean it's not good. It doesn't mean it's not helpful to help you, you know, problem solve well and critically think, which are important things. I said, but that's not my heart's passion, man. You know, and, and then we get a chance to talk about what it's like to be a pastor. And like the, the main goal and the main idea, I said, listen, I said, the thing that I'm most passionate about that I really enjoy, that I love to see, I love to see when people like yourself at a young age or adults, they choose to allow God into their life and fully surrender themselves and then I love to see what God does with their lives. About how you, at a young age, as a teenager, God will make clear to you as far as like who to date, what kind of major to pick, what kind of job to check out, what kind of doors open that would normally be closed. When older people, when they're in marriages, and they want to quit, and they want to stop, and everything looks horrible and looks pretty hopeless, but for some reason they're having a faith, and they still show up to a Bible study, they still pray, they still remain faithful, and then God does a miraculous change in somebody's heart. I said, this is the stuff that's exciting to me. And it's really funny to see their face. The last one this past week, he's like, that's what's up. That's what's up, Mr. Murphy. That's what's up. <laughs> so that is what's up. So it's really good stuff. So God's doing something, you know, and there's going to be some continuous breakthroughs. So I'm saying, hold on. Um, a lot of us might not even like some of it. It will be uncomfortable for a lot of us. It, it'll stretch us and bring us to different places and around different people that maybe we won't necessarily love or like or will be confused by or maybe intimidated by. But um, if we can stay together as a family, it's going to be really important for us. So I feel like that's kind of a word from the Lord. I don't say that very often, but I just want to say that. Okay? All right. Okay, uh, yeah, here we go this, this morning. Why did God allow that to happen? There's a loaded question. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we praise you and we thank you for what you're doing here in our midst. I know, Lord, that you need to do a good work in each and every one of us at an individual level before you can really do a significant 
life-changing, culture-changing work through us. It's got to be done in us first so we know it, so we've experienced it, so we understand better who we are before you can do it through us. And I know that's what you're creating here, Lord. Individuals that know your heart, where we understand who we are as a child of you. We have a greater vision of what you have for our lives. We have clarity on your assignment. And Lord, you're going to build through us as we understand these things better, Lord. And so, Father, this morning, we're asking for greater wisdom and revelation from you. We don't pretend to know all that you know and the reasons for why you do all that you do. And we're not even saying we need to know, Father. Some things are just reserved for you and for you alone, and you do things the way you want to do them. But I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged by some of what we do know about you. And we pray for that spirit of doubt, um, the spirit of unsettledness, that that wouldn't overtake our minds and our souls. So I pray that you'd really touch our minds this morning and encourage our hearts with the good news of who you are. And even when things are confusing, that doesn't mean that you're not good. And it doesn't mean you don't exist. And it doesn't mean that you don't have a good plan happening. So we trust you and we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, so that's a big question, huh? Why did God allow that to happen? I don't know where you can see up there. You know, you see some stuff from the tsunami there, and you see a bunch of flooding, and there's some planes over there. and It's basically just giving you snapshots of all kinds of things that happens on this globe all the time in the world around us where it's like, why in the world? What the heck is going on? How come and why? I mean, just this past week, you know, with Las Vegas, you know, deadliest shooting so far in America. I say so far because, you know, so far. It was really weird that morning, too. I, I, I woke up that morning, and I never, ever, I mean, I'm telling you, never. I never wake up and check the news. Never. Occasionally, I will wake up, check my email or something. I'm like, what did I forget to do at work? You know, who did I forget to get back to or something? What kid emailed me about their homework? You know, whatever it might be. Possibly check social media, but I will never wake up and check the news. For whatever reason, uh, that morning I woke up and I was like, check the news, check the news. And I'm like, I don't check the news. You know, I don't. Most of it's depressing, anyways. So sure enough, I go check the news and I'm like, what in the world? Yet again, right? Happens yet again, you know. Let Julie know, and she's like, what the heck? Then you got all these, you know, hurricanes happening and um, flooding going on. and, And that's just around here. I mean, you have, you know, really massive genocide happening in Myanmar right now, and um, there's just oppression and cruelty happening throughout, all over the place, everywhere. I mean, and and the truth of it is, it's not like it's anything new. A lot of this stuff has been happening for a long time. Even tomorrow, Columbus Day. I mean, there will be a lot of people that won't want to celebrate Columbus Day, and for a lot of good reasons. Um... A lot of Native Americans that were here, he was brutal. I mean, brutal. Really brutal to those that were here. And like what he did and how he treated people, um, if you're a Christian, it'll, it'll hurt your heart. 
You know, it'll hurt your heart. So, we live in this arena, in this world, where God is supreme and sovereign in control, which most, most Christians, you know, will like agree to. But then you have this, this other element of evil that, that makes things difficult a lot of times. And sometimes what some people do is they would just look at the evil, and then through the lens of evil, they would then determine who God is and what type of God he is. Right? They look at the evil, and through that lens, they then determine to make a judgment on what kind of God he is or what he does. And then there's others that look through God through a different lens, and they say, no, 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 that's the type of God that he is and what he's all about. And so, this morning, it's not my intention, nor I don't think it's really our purpose, to completely, exhaustively talk about everything that God does and why he does what he does and try and answer all the questions of the why about what God does when he does it. But, this passage we're going to read leads us into it, and I just wanted to highlight a few things out of it. So, if by the end you still have questions and you're not like quite settled on some things, I'm really sorry. Um, I won't be surprised if that happens. But the idea is to, I, I hope, honestly, by the end of the message here, we'll see how it goes, to just better, I hope to encourage your hearts with about the good and righteous nature of who God is. And when some things happen, and when brutal things happen, and when they develop and, and unfold, hopefully it won't shake us too much. Hopefully it won't shake us too much. Hopefully not at all. But it's kind of hard. Because we're all human and we got hearts, you know? Okay, so let's read this and, and let's check out what's going on, okay? 1 Samuel 22, we'll pick up in verse 6. If you've been missing what's going on, I'm going to give you this super quick recap before we read it. One is, you can check them all out online, they're all there. Number two is, we have been looking at for the past few weeks, the preparation, I'm going to say Preparation preparation of King David. He's being prepared. Joanna talked about assignments. He's being prepared for his assignment. He's not being punished. He's being prepared. So there's a preparation happening that God is doing in David's life, who was a young shepherd boy and he was called to be king, 14, 15 years old. God says, you're the next king. And he does it in front of his family. They do it in the living room. Oil flowing down him. It's amazing. Um, but now he needs to be prepared to be able to lead people um, to, to uh, be on the run and to be attacked, be handled di- discouragement and difficulty, betrayal. He needs to be, hum- be able to handle all of these things if he's going to be a good leader. And so God knows that. And so now he's preparing David um, to, to really be able to handle an entire kingdom and to lead that kingdom after God's own heart. Because that's what Na- David was known for. That's why he was chosen. It's only one person in the Bible that it says that about. And it says that about David, that he was a man after God's own heart. Not that he was just like God, but he was after his heart. He was relentlessly passionate about encountering and being close to the heart of God. That's what he was known for. I think there's a little bit of a message in there for a lot of us men that's like, hey, maybe we should be known for something like that. A lot of us want to be known for how much money we make, how good we are at a particular sport, what kind of fan we are, how much sports information we know. And it's like, really? Maybe there's something to be said about David's own heart, about how he attracted heaven and about how God used him. 
It's very much the calling on like men's lives. That's for another day, though. But last time we found out that God led David to a cave, cave of Adullam, all by himself. Everybody's on the hunt after him, so he just hides out in a cave. Then God brings the dream team. Remember the, everybody remember the dream team? Brings the dream team over. 400 distressed, discouraged, and in debt. That's your money team right there. God says, boom, there's your guys. So then he gets them. And what's interesting is that we read about last week, they actually turn out to be David's mighty men. That's how the Bible refers to them. God takes 400 quote-unquote losers. I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I mean, that's just like, they've just been losing in life, and now they're at a bad place in life. They're looking to hang out in a cave with another guy that has no idea what he's doing, and David. And God changes the story completely. He makes them his mighty men. And then what God does, he takes them out of the cave, and he says, hey, listen, now it's time for you to go confront, at least be around King Saul, because the battle that you need to win, you cannot do it by staying in the cave. And writing all your psalms in the cave, doing your worship time and fellowship time in the cave, it's good and it's needed, but now you actually have to go out and engage in warfare and engage in battle. So that's why it's like not good for us to just always be in a church service forever and do stuff here. We need to go actually out and fight the good fight of faith and be faithful in what God has called us to do. So holy huddles, you know what I'm saying? Like, you need some of that for some period of time to help stir one another on in good works, as the Bible says in Hebrews. But the idea is to actually go out and win victories and win battles. And we only do that by actually engaging. So now we pick up in verse 6 of what's going on here. And actually, I'm going to start in verse 5. It says, But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. That means he basically got closer to King Saul. Verse 6. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul, spear in hand, was seated under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah with all his officials standing around him. Unfortunately, that's been kind of like a common position for King Saul to be sitting with a spear in his hand. And you remember he threw it at David? He threw it at his own son, Jonathan. This is the way he handles his problems. And some people handle their problems like that. This is the way they lead, is by intimidation. And it didn't really work out really well for King Saul. So I said to them, let me show you how else this guy leads. This is really, it's a bad day for Saul. Saul said to them, listen, men of Benjamin. And it's not by accident, you know, that he uses this term Benjamin. So Saul himself, he's like from the Benjamin clan. There's like 12 tribes. And Benjamin, at this point in time, like that's, that's where Saul's from. Those are like, that's his peeps, that's his crew, that's where he's from. So he says, listen, men of Benjamin. There's somebody, and we're going to read in a minute, but basically David, he's not from the tribe of Benjamin, he's from the tribe of Starts with the J. Judah, right? He's from the tribe of Judah. And right now, Saul is going to appeal to the fact that, listen, David's coming from the tribe of Judah. He's not going to actually be for you like I have been trying to be for you in the way I can benefit you. So he's like appealing to sort of their background, and he's really playing games here with them. So he says, listen, men of Judah, 
Will the son of Jesse, right, from Judah, give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. That's David. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does today. Everybody say paranoid. Yeah, he's super paranoid. Right, because number one, David's not lying in wait to just try and take him out. He's hiding for his life. Nobody else is trying to like take out Saul. He's trying to take out anybody associated to David. So he's incredibly paranoid about what's happening. And so you have this leader who's leading based on fear in the way that you can tell fear is really taking over. He's becoming very violent. He's acting very paranoid and he's manipulating people. And some people try and like make power play moves like in life like that with other people and it's just such the wrong way to do things. You don't inspire people. You can't bring people alongside that way. Nobody appreciates. How many of you like to have mind games played with you to get you to do things that other people want you to do? Nobody likes that. But for some reason in our flesh, like we can easily resort to that. Where we like coerce people. And when I say coerce, that means like you threaten them to do what you want them to do because then if they don't do it, something bad is going to happen to them. Coercion is a tactic. I hope everybody knows that it's not a heavenly tactic. His kindness leads us to repentance. Right? It's just different. So some people like coerce people and they manipulate and they play mind games and they give silent treatments. Right? And they give guilt trips. And this is the way that they interact with other people. They're hypercritical about what happens and to those around them and they try and get a response from them that way. And God's saying that what we're seeing here is like that, that has no place in the heart of someone who wants to follow after the Lord and do things the right way. It might come natural to our flesh, but God's saying, no, 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 I, I would do a work there so that's not there. That's not how I rally and I bring people around. Verse 9. But Dog, Doeg, the Edomite, do you guys remember him from last time, a couple chapters ago? He was the one guy that was there. If you remember King David, he went. He had no place to go, so he ran basically to a church. And the priest was there. And this guy, Doeg, was there, and he saw him. He's not an Israelite. He works in Saul's um, kind of like, uh, what did you compare it to? Almost like a CIA sort of, spy type of operation. He's basically just making sure everybody's doing what they should be doing. And if they're not, he's going to be the first little brown noser running back to King Saul and telling him, hey, they're not doing what they should be doing. And that's his job. That's what he does. He's a little tattletale. A violent tattletale. Verse 9, But Doag the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, that's the priest, son of Atub at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath to Philistines. He said, honestly, I saw him. None of your people are saying anything, but listen, I saw him. And when he came to this priest, and the priest gave him a word from the Lord, and he gave him provisions, and he also gave him the sword of Goliath. How many people know he's not like helping um, uh, priest Ahimelech right now? He's doing a man. That's what he's doing. Verse 11 then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ayatub, 
and his father's whole family, who were the priests at Nob. And they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Atub. Yes, my lord, he said. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me, as he does today? So somebody made a little bit of an assumption here, right? Apparently, Doag had 100% good factual information and didn't require any further questioning or clarification. That's sarcasm. Right? That's sarcasm. Because that's the way Saul took it, though. Because that's the way he wanted to take it. He wasn't interested in hearing otherwise. He got a little bit of what he wanted to hear, so he just, that's the gospel truth. Doag is only telling the truth. It's not like he'd be trying to play me so that way I'd do something for his favor later. So verse 14, Ahimelech is like, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David? Your son-in-law, the captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household? Right? This guy knows nothing. He has no idea about what's happening, what's going on. But Saul is trying to make it look like he did have an idea. Verse 15, Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? He's like, listen, this is not the first time like, I talked to God for him. Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, basically, you're a liar. You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. So you see what happens here. Like, right, he's trying to be honest with the situation. King Saul is like, yeah, that's great. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Somebody's going to pay. Verse 17, then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing if they did not tell me. But the king's officials, I like this, were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So Saul's like, listen, we kill them all right now because they're all aiding uh, this treason, basically. So we're killing him, killing all the priests, and it's going to get a little more worse in a minute. So those in the guard of Saul, they say, hey, actually, no, we're not going to do that. Like, we're not. This is interesting to me. There's a place and there's a time in life where our superiors, our authorities, governing officials, you go do this. There are rare, everybody say rare. rare. Everybody say rare. rare. There's rare occasions. You say, I hear what you're saying, but I ain't doing it. I'm not. I am not. It's not right. There's a greater mandate from heaven, and I know what that is, and what you're saying is going against it, and no, I am not. No. In those, what's that word? Yeah, in those rare occasions, we're called to stand up for heaven's reign and for heaven's rule. But it's, what's that word? It's pretty rare. But it can happen from time to time. And they were drawing the line in the sand and saying, no, like, you're, you're like, this is overboard. This is not right. So, what does he do? Verse 18. Then the king ordered Doag, his dog, right? You turn and strike down the priests. So Doag, the Edomite, turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests with its men, women, children, infants, cattle, donkeys, and sheep. But Abiathar, a son of Ahimelech, 
son of Ahitub, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me, don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. So this is crazy. So not only do the 85 get taken out, then an entire town. How guilty are they? The answer is they're not. They didn't do anything. And you just have this murderous, violent rampage from this guy Doak has full support of the king and it all envelops and happens. Like that, that hurts my heart. Like that bothers me. I don't, I don't like that. So I read that and I'm just, I don't, you know, I don't like it. I see Las Vegas, like, I don't like it. You know, um, you see, I don't read anything, right, that's happening throughout the globe, and just a lot of it, if you spend any time going to any countries and seeing anything, you see the abuse of power, you see the corruption, you know, see cruelty, you see oppression, you don't like it. So, and I'll touch on that in a minute. And then after that, one of his sons escapes, which is interesting to me that he goes and finds David. Because if you think about it, who's the one person responsible for everybody dying? It's David himself, to a large degree. I mean, he went to Ahimelech, and he lied to Ahimelech. Now, he could have lied for a couple reasons. He could have lied because he was just trying to save his own skin. The king was after him. And he didn't want to tell Ahimelech. And so he just made up this thing. I'm on a secret mission. The king sent me. I look like a mess because I had to leave so fast. All my men are outside. He had no men. And, you know, I forgot all my weapons too. And he just lied, this whole lying thing. So he could have lied just to save his own skin. He could have even lied to, like, take care of Ahimelech. So maybe, like, if I just lied to Ahimelech, like, Ahimelech really didn't know anything. Right? It would have looked a lot worse for him if he knew like, David told him the truth, and Himalek like, like, knew the truth, but then he still, like, took care of David. So it's interesting to me that his son runs to David, who kind of, like, played a major role in this. I think his son was aware of something, though. Um, let's be honest. Like, as soon as David comes in, comes in contact with that priest, he's pretty much toast. I mean, honestly, think about it. Any response that he would have done, any response, Saul is going to be coming for him. Let me say it to you this way. The only response that he could have done that Saul would have liked is if he just detained David and kept him there. He said, listen, I don't know, but I'm keeping here. Now you're locked in here. We're going to wait until Saul comes, and I don't know. That's the only way he could have saved his skin. That's the only way. So David, yes, like he, he definitely made the situation worse by one, contacting him, and then by two, kind of creating this whole story. But I think that his son was also aware that Saul was in a horrible place, doing all the wrong things for all the wrong reasons. And that probably was the main contributor to why this incredible outpouring of violence happened. So when you read something like that, a few things that I'm drawn to. One is, man, if you don't see the impact of dishonesty and lying in the passage here, I think like you're reading something else. 
if we can sit around and think that like our lies and dishonesty don't have any impact at all, I think we're severely misled. They definitely have an impact. You can see it in kind of a worst case right here. Right? But dishonesty and lies, it's like, oh man, these things can, these things can go places and create a lot of problems and a lot of havoc, for sure. And then I see what happens here. It's like, my heart just hurts with what happens with all the people there. That entire town. And God knew. For some people, that's like makes it even worse. God knew. And so I think that's the part, you know, that maybe we can struggle with and that can be difficult. As far as the evil and what can happen in this world, even though there is a God who loves people, but yet things like this can transpire and they can happen. So, that kind of leaves us. I can tell you this. Here's what I prayed this week. At least early on in the week. I was like, Lord, where is the hope in this? Where is the hope here? Like, you left this in your word. Where, you know, we should read it. We should study it. Like, where, where can we gain some hope here? Where, where can we see something at work of what you're doing? And I felt like the Lord answered me a couple things. Um, one, one is this, and, and we'll get to something else in a minute. One is, God is equipping and preparing and building all of the people, and he's positioning them in place for he, who he's going to put in the kingdom later to reign. To reign. He's, putting, he's preserving a priesthood. One got away, right? That priest is then going to be a priest over the entire nation. Fast forward 15 years. That's what he's going to do. He's already got prophets with him. He's got Gad and a couple of other guys. David is going to be the king himself. And now he's already been equipped with all the mighty men. So he's got an army, he's got a king, he's got prophets, and he's got priests. God has brought it all together. But it still doesn't make me feel really good about what happened to the people and to the town. So this idea of evil, we're not going to cover the whole situation this morning, but wrote this down this week. Wrote down a lot of things. Um, sometimes God permits evil in order to defeat it. Sometimes he allows it in order to defeat it. And even if we cannot see a purpose and good to come out of it, it doesn't mean that it's impossible for good to come out of it. It doesn't mean it at all. And, you know, it's interesting. If you think about life, think about it this way. I gotta, okay. I'm looking at the clock, so I gotta do this right. If we don't have any type of free will or choice at all, right, our decisions, like, you don't have, if you don't, you don't have love if you don't have hate. You don't have love. Like, I can't say I love you. It means nothing to say I love you to Julie if I'm not, if it's not possible for me also to hate her. Right? Um, you can't have, and, and I wrote some of these down. Hopefully I can find them pretty quickly here. Um, you can't have worship if you don't have blasphemy. Like, if somebody doesn't have the choice to blaspheme God and reject him and not have him, then you don't have worship. Right? You with me? If 
you can't have mercy if you don't have cruelty and you don't have oppression. Like, these things don't exist unless you have the other. Like, take something like good like water. Right? If you take like water, it brings life. If you find water on a planet, you're going to find life. That's just what happens when you have water. It also happens to be true, if you have a lot of water, it's possible for somebody to drown. Right? You, like, you have like this good side that God had intended that he had created, but that can be manipulated and used for the wrong reasons. You have a gift like sex. It's incredible. It actually brings forth life. But with that, you also get rape. Like, you have this side. God has created to have this type of universe, this type of situation, to where we have these choices for good and amazing things that he desires for them to be used in pure and righteous and holy ways. Because on the other end, they can be severely misused, mishandled, taken advantage of, and evil can then happen and take place. In other words, God has set it up this way. It comes with the territory of what he has created in this world of just free will and free choice. It's just going to happen. And certainly, like, I hear that, and honestly, you know what I, I say to myself a lot of times? I'm like, well, okay, but I feel like, God, you should intervene a little more often than you do. To be honest, like, that's the skeptical, you know, side of me, and that's the fleshly side. And that's also the side of me that doesn't see everything that happens in the world, and I don't have God's vantage point. Right? I don't have it. You don't have it. We don't know. And just because even I don't see something in my generation doesn't mean it won't happen in the next generation. Are you with me? So, like, we don't know. So we live just in this environment where evil can just happen and it'll just take place. Jesus himself in the New Testament, he's approached by the religious leaders. And I was going to read it, but we don't have time, so I just have to tell it to you. And you've got to take my word for it. You can turn to John 7 later. But he's approached, and, he said, and they say, hey, listen, who sinned in this person's life that this guy is blind? Who sinned? Because obviously this bad thing happened because somebody must have sinned. And Jesus' response is interesting. He says, actually, nobody did. This actually has just happened so that the works of God can be shown and manifest in his life. Nobody sinned. Nobody did anything wrong. It's just, and the Bible says it rains on the just and on the unjust. Just happens. And the author of life, sometimes he also just takes life and he just does things with life. I don't understand it. I don't quite get all of it. But it definitely happens. Another situation, Jesus approached. They say, hey, listen, this huge pillar fell in this pool and 18 people died. Why did that happen? What did they do? What was wrong? And God said, well, nothing happened. None of them did anything wrong. He said, but listen, if you don't repent right now and make yourself in right relationship with God, you should be concerned with what happens after that. So it's interesting, just in those two that I brought up, that God made a point to say, hey, we live in this world where good and evil things are happening all around us all the time. And if it's left strictly to our interpretation, we can get in trouble. 
But here's where I can tell you where there is some hope and some things that the Bible has said and some things that Jesus has said. Evil will not be eliminated in our lifetime and on this planet. Because if it does, so does choice. It goes out the window. So, here's what that means for you and for me and for all of us. What that means is that we are called, and here's the really good news, we have been equipped. Everybody say equipped. We have been equipped, we have been called to overcome evil with good. Amen, Sister Tabitha. Yes. Because that's the truth, that's the reality that we live in. We are called to overcome, to walk in such victory to where the evil cannot have predominant influence. And we, because we are in relationship with God and we have the Spirit of God living inside of us, we're supposed to be functioning and bringing that not only to our own lives and homes, but to the world around us. Saying, well, okay, what happened in Las Vegas happened in Las Vegas. What happened in Columbine happened in Columbine. What happened in Newtown is what happened in Newtown. The response of the Christians is then not like, well, I'm not sending my kids to school. I'm not ever going to Las Vegas. I'm not ever doing this. It should create a sense of heightened awareness. But the Christian should also predominantly respond in an attitude of, God is faithful. He is good. Let's come alongside and help mend these wounds. Let's get behind and show them the God who transforms. Let's actually be the extensions of his grace, of his hands, of the good news and what he wants to do. Let's even be in a position to release miraculous things that God may want to do in their lives. This is where we're called to like come together. Evil happens. The idea is that evil happens and then the Christians come together and they actually overcome. They swarm. You know how you see ants and they just swarm like this stuff? The Christians come and they just swarm the scene to where all you can see is the good news, the gospel, and the life of Jesus Christ. That's the way I'm called. That's what we're called to do. And that's one of the exciting things about a church family is that when you're in a healthy and good church family and people are on the same page and they're for the same cause, it's like we understand how to respond. We don't have to go through so much of the persuasive kind of like, let's get you on board with this. Like it's already, no, this is the gospel. It's in my heart. It's in my life. I live this. And so we need to bring it to this situation. So evil is real, and it happens, and it's around. But we're called to overcome it, to almost snuff it out with the good news. And in the middle of that, there are, we don't have time, there's countless stories of what has happened in Newtown, even already in Las Vegas, in 9-11, of just one just meeting just needs on just a local, just sort of just physical level. There's also countless stories of prophetic words, of people being touched supernaturally, of things just happening to people's lives in and around the situation. And that's like where we are called to rise up. And that's why it's okay for us to be like not okay with what happens at Nob. 
and not okay with what happens in Las Vegas because it's built inside of us. The Spirit puts it there and says, this is not, no. We need to rise up and like respond. Not with a greater amount of evil to like come after it, but in a way of like, as the Bible says, with good and with truth and with the good news. Second Thessalonians 3 says, But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. The Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Because here's the good news. Even if, for whatever reason, I don't make it till tomorrow, one, I know where I'm going. Two, I've invested so much truth and seed into my family I don't know, I feel pretty good about it. Yeah, praise God is right. And there might be a relentless onslaught, and that's fine. But you know what? While I'm here, and I'm around, especially around my family, or around my church, I am making sure it is top priority in my life that truth and that light come out, that they flow out, that that message of who God is and what He does and the reality of His nature that is not suppressed. That is on full blast. Because we have been called, but we've also been equipped to be more than conquerors. I want to read you this one last thing, and then we're going to take communion together. This was, I would consider this like a prophetic word. You may or may not, and that's fine. And whether you do or you don't, doesn't mean you're not part of the church or not. I'm just saying I wanted to share it with you. Okay? Um, I, thought, I thought it was pretty good. Um, here's what they said. And they, uh, they wrote this after... Uh, what, was the last, what was the last one? Hurricane Irma or Maria? What was the last one? Maria. So it was right after that that they wrote this. They felt like the Lord put it on their hearts. It's coming from somebody out of Arizona. Um, natural disasters. Right, that's, even, that's in a different category even than what we just read. We just read about manipulation, right, about murder, like premeditated. Like. Natural disasters are not God's judgment on our country, nor God trying to get our attention. They are simply the product of a sinful and imperfect and broken world. Jesus himself, who is sinlessly perfect, God's beloved son, faced several storms in which he slept in, rebuked, or walked through. The Apostle Paul endured a brutal, long-lasting hurricane, although he was in the center of God's will for his life. Paul used his faith to believe for not one person to die in his ship, and no one did. Then he saw an entire people group previously unreached, saved and healed on the island of Malta. It's in the book of Acts. Something really good coming from something really bad. God uses people of faith in times of trouble and hardships to make a difference in the lives of those hurting and in need. Instead of trying to place false blame and further discourage people who are already really suffering, let us as God's people share God's love and hope to all this generation. In the midst of pain, hopelessness, and darkness, this is our hour to shine.
I think that's a good word. I think it's a good word. And so I think what the Lord really wanted to impress upon our hearts this morning is like, you know, we do live in this environment, good and evil. And if you read anything in the Bible, you see that God is in supreme sovereign control. You also see that the enemy, he does have power, but he doesn't have, he's not guaranteed influence into people's lives. That we give him if we choose to believe lies, if we choose to act certain ways, we give him power. Some of us like, have been given the devil power for a long time. And just recently are coming under the awareness of, why did I do that when I didn't have to? And it changes your life forever. And I think God wanted to encourage our hearts this morning that even though you have this reality of good and evil, God promises to change situations and bring good out of bad. And really, our responsibility is to rise up and be faithful in the midst. And I'll tell you what, it's really almost impossible. And it's kind of insulting to try and bring the hope of God to people that are suffering and hurting if we personally don't live in it, don't know it, and aren't active in it. It's not helpful, and it's actually insulting. And God is calling us to have our history and our relationship with him to be current so we can actually bring something out of the overflow of what he's doing in our lives to those around us. Because that is what changes what happens around us. Amen and amen. Amen and amen. Alrighty, let's pass these out. Our elements here for communion, I want to Take this and share this together with you. Um, Kayla, do you mind? Don, do you mind passing this? Thanks. So if you could, just hold on to the elements when you receive them. We're going to take it together. And Sal, maybe if you could just play that last song there just quietly. Thanks.